0: Oh. Um, for those of you that do not uh, That that are that I'm new to your life I don't know if that even makes any sense What I just said uh, You're just meeting me for the first time Or just joining us for the first time online um, I don't come from a religious background I don't come from a church background I was not raised in church I was not raised in a Christian home I was raised in an environment that was very secular For us Christmas was Santa Claus For us the Easter was Easter Bunny We never went to church We never prayed in our home We never had a Bible in our home It was never anything that ever was ever even discussed So at 30 uh, 34 years old, 22 years ago someone came to our house and shared the gospel with us and God miraculously revealed not only the fact that I was a sinner to me and to my wife but he miraculously saved and changed our lives that night and redirected everything. So I never dreamed back then, I was one of the most liberal people. I would have driven you I was a nut, man. I was a recycling maniac. If we do come to my house and throw in a can in my, in my trash, I would have had a fight with you at the house. I'm not kidding. It was bizarre. I was the most I was a nut. That's all I know. So people that knew me before are just like, holy cow, I can't believe that you are who you are today. So it's only by the grace of God, um, because I knew nothing about the Bible at all. And the fact that I am able to teach it now is only by the Spirit of God. It's a miraculous, miraculous work. So what we're going to get into today is uh, we're going to be digging into the book of Joshua. And I've been in the book of Joshua. We're 111 messages in the book of Joshua, and we're still in Joshua 18. There's only 24 chapters. But what we've done is a very deep dive into understanding more of what Scripture says, not just what we read on the surface, but what God's actually wanting us to understand. So much of the Bible is in layers, and if you don't understand how to peel back those layers, you miss it. There's people that read the Bible and go, I don't get anything out of it. Other people can sit down and read that exact same verse and spend six months studying it. It's all about perspective. So what we're going to do today is going to peel back some of the layers of the onion and help you to see a little bit of what's going on. So last time I was with you guys, we were in a message that was called Making Right Divisions. That's Joshua 18. Uh, We were in verses 8 through 10. And what we saw in that message was there was a shift that took place. There was God had been dealing with the Israelites as a whole. Now, what you need to know is in the scriptures, Israel is a picture of the individual believer in scripture. So what we saw is he had been dealing with Israel as a whole. And then what he did is he actually changed his perspective and started dealing with a very small group of men. These men, there were three that were chosen out of the last seven tribes that had not yet received their inheritance. Ultimately, when God brought them out of Egypt in the Exodus, it was not just to get them out of Egypt. It was to get them into the promised land. That was the goal. So here we are. That's what's taking place with Joshua. They're getting into the promised land. So now these last seven tribes have got three men that are their representatives and their job is given to them by God through Joshua. And what we saw is when we, when we dealt with them was the fact Fact that first of all, God instructed them. Then he received their. They received their promises. They fulfilled their responsibilities. They received their inheritance, and God's will was accomplished. And as we saw this, what we saw was the way it played out was Joshua basically presented to them. He said, "Hey, listen. This is these are the expectations. I'm going to clearly define them for you." They recognized his uh, his authority under God, and what was they said, "Hey, you know, we'll take what you said, and we're going to go, and we're going to going to do it." And as they were assigned their tasks, they also received promises. They were told that, "Listen, if you'll do your." you're going to receive your portion of Canaan. So they would individually receive their portion, but also the people as a whole were going to receive theirs as well. So we saw a transition taking place. And what we saw was the fact that this ultimate goal was to get them into this place that had been promised to them. Their forefather, Abraham, had been given this land and promised it generations before. And now, finally, they were going to take possession of this place that was promise to them and what we saw in relating this was we correlated their story to our story understanding that as God deals with us through the word of God what does he do he makes us he gives us instructions he makes promises to us he allows and gives us his expectations of us he promises that he'll bless our faithfulness to him and ultimately that God wants to accomplish his will through us and in order to do so, for us in the word of God, we have to do what's called rightly dividing. Uh, in, the, in the book of first, Second Timothy, it says, uh, 2.15, it says, Study to show thyself approved, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. So if it says that you have to rightly divide it, that means that there is an opportunity for us to wrongly divide it. Why are people in false doctrine all over this city? Because they have wrongly divided the word of God. They don't understand how to use the word of God to define the Word of God. The Bible teaches us and tells us that it's not for private interpretation. So you're not supposed to read the Bible and go, oh, man, that's cool. You know what that means to me, brother? I'm like, I don't care what it means to you. It is irrelevant. What does the Bible say? Right, so there's people that can take Scripture and make it say what they wanted to say to fit a narrative that they have. But what happens if we allow the Bible to define the Bible? You don't get yourself taken in different directions and mis, uh, misunderstanding. So it takes study and it takes work. But I can promise you this: if you will put in the study and the work, man, it is amazing what this Bible can reveal to you. Liz and I were talking about before service. She said, "I've been saved for how many years?" 53 years and she said yet there's she's reading the Bible like it's a fresh and a new every it's amazing how it continues just to open up and as you peel back the layers you realize more and more and more how little you actually know which is pretty remarkable that happens to me every single week so let's rightly divide God's word as we continue in the book of Joshua chapter number 18 and what we're going to do is we're going to cover all the way from Joshua 11 all the way to Joshua 28 now if you've read ahead and you've read those you're going to go okie-dokie it is a list of locations and the names of cities. That's all it is. So I'm not going to take the time to read every one of those places and locations to you, but what we are going to do is we're going to sort of look at this tribe of Benjamin. That's who's receiving their reward. Their and what we'll see in the Benjamites is these are people that have been given a lot. They've really been privileged. They've been given a tremendous amount. And what's happening is we're going to see that yet... Though they've been given so much, we don't see an attitude of gratitude. We don't see them honoring what it was that they received. We don't see them being good stewards of what it is they were given. What we'll actually see today is an example of them, uh, an example of neglect, misuse, and ingratitude of what they've been blessed with this morning in the message, which is called the pitfalls of privilege. All right, let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for the gift of life and of love and the word. And, Lord, you know my desire today is not to be heard. God, you know what a mess I am. You know where I come from. And, Lord, you know that I am not a, a, a gifted order. But, God, I do pray that you'd let me, Father, just deliver what it is that you've shown me this week. God, I just pray. I know you've spoken to me. And I'm asking you now, Lord, if it would be your will, would you speak through me? Lord, help me not to get of the way. Remove the human element that you, your word might speak to our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. All right, let me get a sip of water here. Here we go. So, though we're going to see kind of a story of failure today, okay, I just want to preface this. We're going to see a lot of issues of failure. What's really cool is we're also going to see a story of redemption. Because there's going to be a very special Benjamite that we'll see at the end of our story that God's going to do something incredible through. But before we get there, let's dig into Joshua. I'm just going to read you the first verse of Joshua 18. Verse number 11, it says, "...and a lot of the tribe of the children of Benjamin came up according to their families, and the coast of their lot came forth between the children of Judah... And the children of Joseph. Now, if we look at our map, you can look at the map there or look at it up here. So we have Judah. They were the first to receive their land. Now, they were preferred or or favored by God. He gave them the largest plot of land, a pretty miraculous size. So here we have Judah. Here's Benjamin. And then we have here Ephraim and Manasseh. That's going to be the tribe of Joseph. So what we see is Benjamin is located right in this sweet spot right between the two. And what we'll see as we read through these verses, as I said, you'll see a tremendous amount of landmarks from verse 11 all the way to verse 20. From verses 21 through 28, what we see is a list of cities. These are specific places that are going to be under their jurisdiction. And of these 26 cities, there are going to be two that are going to be really important today. Now, we're not going to touch on them right now, but those two cities are Jerusalem. And now, the word Jerusalem means a city of peace. And the word, and the other is Gabeah. And Gabeah means hill. There you go. Do with it what you will. Not a whole lot going on with that, but these two cities are going to be very important to us. But what I want us to do is as we look into the Benjamites and the Benjamites, as their story unfolds, this will all make sense as we work our way along. So today's not going to be like a traditional message where I'm going to give you a point and we're going to build on. We're going to kind of sort of tell a story today. We're going to walk through the story of the Benjamites. So it'll be uh, the best of my ability. I will communicate that to you guys. So Benjamin, who is Benjamin? Benjamin was the youngest son of the 12. He was the last one born. He was born of a woman by the name of Rachel. If you remember who Rachel was, Rachel was the beloved of Jacob, man. She was the one, man. He was like, man, I got the hots for her. That She's the one I want. Oh, my goodness. He was just smitten with her. And then what happens is her father, Laban, does a does little trickery and slips in another girl who's pretty homely, and her name's Leah, and he's like, dang, that's not at all what I thought was going to happen, and then he's like, and he says, listen, you got to give another seven years, and if you give you seven more years, then guess what? Eventually, you're going to get Rachel, so he's like, look, she's worth it. I'm going to do it, and what happens is Rachel gives birth to Benjamin, but sadly, in Benjamin's birth, Rachel is going to die. She dies in birth. Genesis 35, 18 says this, and it came to pass, as her soul was in departing, for she died, that she called his name ben Now, ben translates as the son of my sorrow. But notice this. But his father called him Benjamin, son of my right hand. So she calls him son of my sorrow, but his name is actually son of my right hand. And what's interesting is here, baby Jacob comes on, or baby, um, baby uh, Benjamin comes on the scene, and he's honored. He's reverenced. He's loved. Now, we have only two kids that come from Rachel. Now, he has a total of 12, but there are only two that will come from Rachel. That's going to be Joseph and Benjamin. And we know Joseph is preferred. We know that Joseph is a favorite son. We go to Genesis chapter 37, verse 3, and we hear this as he says, Now Israel loved Joseph more than all his children. Why? Because he was the son of his old age and he made him a coat of many colors. Now, we know Joseph's story when he went into slavery and all the things that took place in Joseph's life, but we saw he was, he was, he was uh, preferred by his father. He was loved by his dad because he was the son of his old age. So if Joseph, the next to the oldest, is the son of his old age, then Benjamin is certainly the son of his really old age. Really old age. I don't know how you say it, but <laughs> he's the final one. But there's also, perhaps, an attachment to the fact that his beloved Rachel dies as a result of Jacob, of Benjamin. So we don't really necessarily understand. But what we do see is there is certainly a preference to these two boys. But when we get to Genesis chapter 49, this is at the end of Israel's life. And what's going to happen is he's going to bless his 12 sons. And as he does so, we're going to see there's a discrepancy between the way that he communicates or talks about Joseph and the way that he'll talk about Benjamin. With Joseph, there's going to be five verses talking about blessings, wrapping up with verse number 26 in forty-nine, Genesis 49, 26. He says, The blessings of thy father have prevailed above the blessings of my progenitors unto the utmost bound of the everlasting hills. He's basically saying, listen, the blessings that my dad received and the blessings that my, that my forefathers received, all those blessings, listen, all those things, verse number continues, they shall be on the head of Joseph. Boy, Joseph is going to get it out. Man, This he is blessed. And on the crown of the head of him, that was separated from his brethren, talking about Joseph's separation in slavery. So we see him showing a little bit of Joseph's story, but also talking about the prophecy of his, of his great blessing. But then Benjamin. With Benjamin, we just get a little glimpse kind of into who he is and who his people are going to be. He says this in Genesis 49, 27. Benjamin shall raven as a wolf. I want you to say that there, there are not a positive story or a positive reflection of a wolf in Scripture. We see a, uh, people that work in the church that, that will come. They are wolves, right, dressed in sheep's clothing. There's not a positive connotation to that. He says, in the morning he shall devour the prey, and at night he shall divide the spoil. That's what he has to say about Benjamin. So it's interesting there. We don't see a lot about blessings We actually see some things that are pretty, pretty negative. What we do know about Benjamin as we study their history is they were fierce, fierce warriors. They were talented at wreaking havoc. And we'll learn a little bit about that later. But listen to what Moses has to say about them. Moses will give a similar blessing as he then speaks in Deuteronomy 33, 12. He says, and to Benjamin, he said, the beloved of the Lord. Okay, now the beloved of the Lord, that's Joseph. Okay, he says, the beloved of the Lord shall dwell in safety by him. Now, if we look at our map, we already looked at it. If we look at that map, it's on your paper. Don't worry about that. Oh, there it is. If you look at the map. So it says here that the beloved of the Lord, which is going to be Ephraim and Manasseh, that's this guy's up here. He says is going to dwell by him. So we know even before the lots were given by God, when they were going to draw the lots, God already knew where he was going to be. So we see that right there. Then he says this, and the Lord shall cover him all the day long, and he shall dwell between his shoulders. So Benjamin's offspring, well, they are certainly going to be protected. They're going to be nestled between Joseph and Judah. They are favored without a doubt. But in Moses' statement, we don't see anything about prosperity. We don't see anything about, about blessings. In both Moses and in Jacob, we see a pattern where Benjamin is in a place of privilege where he should definitely be favored. But at the same time, we recognize the fact that, listen, that's not their story. That's not their story. What, look at what they receive. When we look into our scripture, we see here in our map, we saw the fact that they receive Jerusalem. It's listed as Jebus. And Jerusalem means, as I said before, so here's Jerusalem right here, or right here, so right here on the border. And then we see also that they also received Jericho. Jericho, Jericho is the most rich, fertile part of all of Canaan. It was called the City of Palms. I mean, it was incredible. Why did that gigantic city form there? Because of the incredible blessing that it was. So here, Benjamin receives Jericho. Benjamin also receives Jerusalem. Yet we don't see a pattern of blessings with them. And why is it? It's because of them. It's their own history. So what we're going to do is we're going to look a little bit into their history, and this is where we're going to jump into it. We're going to go 14 years in the future after they received their inheritance, and there's an event that takes place in Judges chapter 19. Okay, So if we listen to this here, Judges 19.1, it says this, And it came to pass in those days, When there was no king in Israel, that there was a certain Levite sojourning on the side of Mount Ephraim, who took to him a concubine out of Bethlehem, Judah. Bethlehem is the city of Bethlehem, and it's in the land of Judah. This man is coming out of Ephraim. He is a a Levite. A Levite would have been one of the priest class. And here he is traveling. It says he's traveling with a concubine. But the line I want you to pay attention to is where it says, there was no king in Israel. Okay? Okay. There was no king in Israel. It's important because not only does that mean that there was no jurisdiction, no physical dictatorial king that was over them on the physical world, but it's also referencing their relationship with God. They were not walking with God. So they didn't have a king on earth, and they were not worshiping, and they were not being ruled by the king of kings. These people were not walking with God. And in that opening verse, it also talks about the concubine. Now, a concubine, what is a concubine? A concubine is like a legal mistress, basically. She is bound to him legally, but she has no, uh, no right to any properties. Now, is it okay to have a concubine? No. Was it wrong back then? Yes. Is it wrong today? Yes. Just so you know, it's wrong. Do not have a concubine. None of us, right? And what we have is the fact that now David had a concubine, right? Abraham, all these different guys had them, but they were not in God's will. God defines for us what, what marriage is to be, he tells us in Genesis chapter 2, right? And then we see, listen, in Genesis, uh, then we go into to Matthew chapter 19. Jesus, again, reaffirms in the New Testament and says, listen, that's the way it's supposed to be. One man with one woman until death do they part. But what we find is here is a, a relationship where there's, there's some stuff going on. Now, we're going to find out later the Levite's not a good guy. He's just not a good guy. He does not really love her. He doesn't care for her. But this is what's going on in 19.2. And his concubine played the whore against him. She was unfaithful. And it went, went away from him unto her father's house to Bethlehem Judah and was there for four whole months. So now the, the Levite has lost his concubine. So he says, you know what? I'm going to go get her. I'm going to go to her parents' house and I'm going to get her back. And he goes down there and he, he works his wily ways and says what he needs to say and whatever, you know, bring some flowers and chocolates and such. And what happens is he, he's able to reconcile. Here we see in Judges 19.3 9, where this takes place. And it says, and her husband arose and went after her. It calls him a husband. Again, there's that legal bond. But again, she gets no property to speak friendly unto her and to bring her again having his servant with him and a couple of asses, and she brought him into her father's house. And when the father of the damsel saw him, he rejoiced to meet him. So what happens is over that period of time when he goes to restore that relationship, he is man, he is saying all the right things. He is Mr. Suave, Mr. whatever, debonair. He's doing the whole shebang. So in the end, she agrees, okay, you're wonderful. I'll go with you. And he's like, yes, got it, right? So they leave and they're heading back to Ephraim. Here they go back marching out. And they go, it says 19... 19- Judges 19, verse 11, we'll pick up there. And it says, and when they were Jebus. Now remember, Jebus is, is Jerusalem. If you look at your map, right? It says, the day was far spent, and the servant said unto his master, Come, I pray thee, and let us turn into this city of the Jebusites and lodge in it. I want you to notice the wording there. He does not call it. This city is in the land of Benjamin and it has been for 14 years. And 14 years later, this guy references and says, a city of the Jebusites. He doesn't say that it's a city of God. He says it's a city of Jebusites. They have lost control of the city that God has entrusted to them. Now, why is that the case? Why does he call it the Jebusites? Verse Judges 121 tells us, and the children of Benjamin did not drive out the Jebusites that inhabited in Jerusalem, but the Jebusites dwell with the children of Benjamin in Jerusalem unto this day. They did not do what God told them to do, right? That's exactly what's taking place. So the most significant city that has ever existed and that will ever exist, the spiritual focal point of God on the earth, the epicenter of every biblical event ultimately is going to take place at this very, very city. Instead of appreciating it, Instead of honoring it, instead of defending it and fighting for it, they literally let it just fall into the hands of, a, of an enemy. An ultimate picture of ingratitude, an ultimate picture of entitlement, right? And so Eric talked about this last week. He was talking about being ungrateful. And so this is a perfect example of being ungrateful. Given something so amazing, and instead, instead of valuing it, eh, taking it for granted, letting it fall into ruin. This can be a marriage. This can be a relationship between a husband and wife. This can be a relationship between a father and a son, a a father and a a, a child, whatever. It could be our job, whatever it is. We're blessed with something, and yet if we do not take care of it, guess what, it's gonna fall into disrepair. If you have a car and you don't maintain it, guess what happens to it eventually? It blows up, right? When we go to Africa and work, what's amazing in Africa, they do not know what it means to maintain a car. They don't get that at all. Because the idea is you say, listen, if you'll put do maintenance on it, it won't break. And they're like, but it's not broken. Why would we do anything to it? And I'm like, it's a good point. But if you'll do something to it now, you can keep it from breaking, but it's working fine. I got that part. Yes, it is working fine, but if you, it'll continue to work fine. If you, we'll fix it when it breaks. And I'm like, OK. They gave me a car one time I was driving. And I looked down. And I was like, wow, it's a weird, weird, something weird going on there. And I looked on the instrument panel. They had taken black electrical tape and taped over all of the lights that were on. All the warning lights were taped over. So you saw this glow around this dark shape, and I'm like, what in the. I'm like, wow, that's unreal. Because their thinking is, when it blows up, then we'll fix it. And so what happens? It's the same mindset. There are people that have marriages or relationships in, in their lives, and they go, you know what? When it blows up, I'll deal with it. And that cannot be the attitude. We need to maintain things and be honored by what it is that we've been given. Man, take care of what you have received from the Lord. So this has been a 14-year period. This has been going on. So if you think about this, during that 14-year period, they are not surrendered to God. They are, in fact, surrendered to themselves. They're looking out for themselves. And if we equate this to us, and let's not say the last 14 years, let's say the the last 14 days. Just in the last two weeks, have we been surrendered to God's will for our life? Or have we been surrendered to to our will for our lives. Have we been grateful for all that we've been given? Have we been good stewards of what God's entrusted us with? How are we doing? Are we surrendering to self or sweet, are we surrendering to God? This struggle that's playing out for us right here is the daily struggle of every believer who's ultimately trying to be sanctified, right? There's a struggle in our hearts. The world constantly wants to get our attention and draw us Right, we look at Instagram. We look at something on Facebook. We look at something. I'm like, man, look at that! Whoa, God, I want that! Man, I want that! Honey, have you seen that? Look at, look at that! Man, we got to get that! I got to get rid of my truck because this truck, that truck's amazing. You see it? The step thing comes down and the lights. I'm looking. Oh man, that's amazing! I'm, I'm, i gonna blow this picture up and put it on my desk. And then suddenly we become consumed with something that's immaterial, right? It's gonna burn up. It's gonna break. And then you know, as soon as we get it, guess what we're looking at? The next newest thing. We're never. Never satisfied. So what we see is the Levite is dealing with exactly what many times us as Christians deal with when we have a relationship with other believers that are not walking with God. Believers that have sold themselves out to to sin. Those believers, right? There's there's an issue that takes place as the world gets closer and closer to the Lord's return. Okay, As we can look at the world right now all around us, and we can certainly see, the Bible talks about when you see wars and rumors of wars and you see earthquakes and floods and fires, all the stuff that we see going on right now. We see all the things, how, how the world has literally come together in the, in the role of what, how has fear had control over our planet during COVID? Yeah. Do you realize that we went to Africa, we were one of the first people to go back into Africa when the doors opened and we got there, guess what? Masks injections. The whole, it's, it was exactly like being here, just as much fear. And I'm talking about in the villages where they have no power. People are masked. The power of fear to control people. And so all this stuff, all the way that the world's traveling right now, we can see the imminent return of the Lord. And as that takes place, Paul's going to speak into this as he talks to Timothy and he says this in 2 Timothy 3 verses 1 through 5. This know also that in the last days, here we go, which is where you and I are right now. He says, "Perilous times shall come, for men shall be lovers of their own selves." Boy, has there ever been a time when people love each other, love themselves more than now? Yeah. Selfie, bye y'all. <laughs> Hold on, I got to get higher because I look too fat. <laughs> right? to <laughs> get just that right angle, because uh, you meet people, have you see a selfie, see a picture of somebody, and you're like, "That's you." <laughs> That's a good picture, (laughs) because you are not that. No, I'm just kidding. Um, (laughs) But that's the reality, right? And so we love ourselves. That's where we are right now. Then look what he says, continue. Covetous, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, hello, unthankful, unholy, without natural affection, truce breakers, false accusers, incontinent, which means out of control, fierce, despisers of those that are good, man. How now in the world is the fact that you can tell the truth, you can share the truth in love, and someone can call it hate speech, right? It says, traitors, heady, high-minded, lovers of pleasures more than lovers of God. Notice what that says. It does not say that they don't love God. It says they do love God. They just love pleasure more. So that's the person who's going, hey, you know what? Oh, I love the Lord. I love the Lord. I love the Lord. I love the Lord. But if you talk about their personal walk with God, they're not surrendered to the Lord. They're surrendered to their flesh. They do what makes them happy and what fulfills them. That's all they're concerned with because guess what? They are a lover of pleasure more than lovers of God. Verse 5, having a form of godliness, right? They look somewhat godly, but denying the power thereof. They're not under the authority of God. And notice what he says here, from such, turn away. So what does the Levite do when he gets to the city? Verse 12, and his master, the Levite, speaking to the servant, says this, We will not turn aside hither into the city of a stranger. Notice this, how sad. This is Jerusalem in the land of Benjamin. He calls it a city of a stranger. That is not of the children of Israel. He says, it's not not Israel at all. It's not even godly. We will pass over to Gebeah. That's the city we're going to go to. Remember, Gebeah translates hill. And they passed on and went their way, and the sun went down upon them when they were by Gebeah, which belonged to Benjamin. So he's thinking, listen, we ain't going to go to Jerusalem because that's not going to be safe for us, so let's go to Gebeah because we know that's, a, that's an, an Israelite city, so we should be good to go there. Let's see how that pans out for him. From verse 15 to verse 21, what we find is the fact that when they get there, they can't find any place to stay. And so what he ends up is he's, he's actually in a situation where he's like, they're going to end up sleeping in the street. And what, just because of the kindness of this old man, who's actually from Ephraim, interestingly enough, he comes along, he sees them, and at the kindness of his heart, he says, no, you guys, come on, you stay with me. So he brings them into, into his home. Judges nineteen twenty two. Now, as they were making their hearts merry, they're having dinner and laughing and talking, behold, the men of the city, certain sons of Belial. Belial means wickedness. It says they beset the house round about and beat at the door and spake to the master of the house, the old man, saying, Bring forth the man that came into thine house, that we may know him. Now, I can promise you this is not a Gebeyan welcoming party. They do not have balloons. That's not what's going on here. That term, know him, is in, a, in the Hebrew. It is talking about a sexual knowing. It talks about husbands and wives. That's what they're talking about. So for those of us that are familiar with the Bible, we probably recognize that little phrase because we see it again or saw it earlier in Genesis 19 verse 5 in Sodom and Gomorrah right there was an instance where the two angels came and Lot brought them into his home and this is what happened in Genesis 19:5 and they called unto Lot and said unto him where are the men which came into thee this night bring them out unto us that we may know them now we know the result of that Sodom and Gomorrah will be utterly destroyed pounded into a hole by God with, from fire from heaven. So we know that how God sees that sexual perversion. But so how does a society, how do, how do people slip into accepting these things? How does this type of sin spread into a society like it has in two hours? Well, it's because, remember, there was no king in Israel. They were not honoring God. And when a society or a country does not reverence God does not stand accountable to God, or at least does not even share a a morality from God, well, then what happens, guess what? They become their own individual rulers. And if we individually are accountable only to ourselves, we have a tendency to give ourselves great liberty. Mm -hmm. We can turn 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 a blind eye to all kinds of sin in our own lives, and we can justify it as long as nobody else knows about it. We're all good. So what happens, how does a culture end up where it is like ours is today? It is simply because of the fact that as a, as a people, if we're not accountable to the Lord, then we will ultimately turn our backs on God. We will, we will turn our backs towards those things that fulfill our flesh, right? Why is sin so pervasive and confusion so profound? We've never had confusion like we do now. People do not know who they are. They don't know what they are. They have, there's complete confusion. The Bible tells us God says that, it says that God is not the author of confusion. That's right. Yet we live in a world right now that is completely consumed with confusion. People are so turned around, and they're looking to TikTok philosophers to give them the answers, and they're going to lead them in a circle which ends up in their own destruction. It's heartbreaking, but this is the reality. And so we look at here with the Benjamites. Here in this city, this is what's taking place as they're pounding on the door. Now what happens out of a response to this, like Lot, out of their fear, what are they going to do? Lot Lot? Lot offered his daughters, for goodness sakes. That shows you how messed up Lot was. And then what happens to the Levite and the old man? The old man says, well, take my daughter. She's a virgin. You can have her. And the Levite says, well, you can take my concubine. Ultimately, he will open the door and push his concubine outside. That shows you how much he cares about this woman. And she will be horribly, horribly treated until literally she is at death's door. All night long she's abused. And the next morning he comes outside and what's heartbreaking is the way that he says he says, get up. Get up. And she doesn't because she's dead. And he puts her body on his horse and he rides back to Ephraim. And when he gets back there he's like, you know what, what was done was so wrong. Not looking at any of his own fault. I mean there's tons of fault to go around. This guy was a mess. The old man was about all of them. But man, that place in Gibeah, this Benjamite city, man, it has gone into just the pits of destruction. And what he does is he does something bizarre. He takes her body and he cuts it into 12 different pieces. And he sends those 12 pieces out to the 12 different tribes. It's kind of like for the shock value, I think, is what he was doing. He's going, man, I was wronged and you guys need to know this. Now, if it sends it, he says he sent it to all 12, that means the Benjamites also received it. But I want you to recognize that when it comes time, the response to this, this horrific thing that these men have witnessed, is that all of the other 11 tribes are going to unite together. And 400,000 soldiers are going to show up at a place called Mizpah. Mizpah is also in Benjamin. And what's interesting, Mizpah is, it actually translates watchtower. And you can see it right here. That's Mizpah. So that's where they show up 400,000 of them. And they're standing right at the borders of Benjamin. And boy, you know what? They're gonna have a here we go. It says Judges 20, verse 1 records it for us. Then all the children of Israel went out, and the congregation was gathered together as one man. They're united against evil. From Dan even to Beersheba with the land of Gilead. That says that literally the guys that are over in that have gone that are in the on the east of the Jordan, the three that are in the wilderness, they come over as well. Everybody, the entire deal, they're all united. And it says, unto the Lord in Mizpah. And now way, see, this is how it plays out. Genesis 20, verses 4 through 9. And the Levite, the husband of the woman that was slain, answered and said, I came into Gebeah that belongeth to Benjamin, I and my concubine to lodge. And the men of Gebeah, they rose against me and beset the house round about upon me by night. And thought to have slain me and my concubine, had they forced that she's dead. He didn't mention what he did. And I took my concubine and cut her in pieces and went and sent her throughout all the country of the inheritance of Israel, for they have committed lewdness and folly in Israel. Behold, ye are all children of Israel. Give here your advice and your counsel. What should we do? Verse 8, And all the people arose as one man, saying, We will not, any of us, go to his tent Neither will we, any of us, turn into his house. Listen, we will not turn a blind eye to sin anymore. We've done it for 14 years. And it's time that we take a stand. This is ridiculous. What's taking place? We cannot allow it because remember, this is given to the God. This is supposed to be the promised land. What is a promised land? For them, it was a physical place, but for you and I, it's a spiritual fellowship with God. And there are Christians that are allowing sin in their lives, in their promised land, and they wonder why their relationship with God sucks. Man, we've got to be willing to face off. And so it takes this awful event to break these men's hearts. And verse 9 says, But now this shall be the thing which we will do in Gebeah. We will go up by lot against it. We are going to stand against evil. Here we go. This wake-up call rallies them to stand against evil. And what's amazing is it sucks that as humanity. That's so many times the, what it, what's, what's forced to happen. Right? We look at what our country, look, you know, 9-11 just happened. Just, I mean, we just, just, it's just, just had the celebration or the remembrance, not celebration of it, the remembrance of it. Man, I can tell you where I was. I'm old enough to remember, man. I, 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 I was, Back in the day, I used to have a mural business, and I was painting a mural for a guy named John Brown. And man, I heard it on the radio. And I was like, and John came running out of the shower and had his towel on. I was like, dude, turn the TV on. And we watched that second plane hit the tower. And we were just like crying. I've been saved for 30 days, man. I just knew the Lord. And I was so heartbroken. Look at these people fall out of this building. And all I could see was souls, man. It just tore me apart. And what happened to this country, man? Right after that, dude, we rallied against evil. This country was one against a common enemy. And that's what's happening right here. And it sucks that it takes stuff like that. Because for 14 years, they didn't stand until something horrific had to happen. And so this this evidence that we see with them, we've got to recognize that the same stuff is true for us. This Levite, this old man, all these folks, man, they failed. We look at what's going on here. They are united truly against what's wrong. United as one against evil. And what's sad is though that was the case 22 years ago. Amazingly, today, I don't know that it would necessarily be the same thing. We have become so calloused to things. What happens now when somebody sees a horrific crime as a video? They share it. You got to see this. You got to see this. It becomes a fascination. We're not, we're, not, we're not heartbroken over what we see. We're fascinated by what we see and we go to click on the next thing and the next thing and the next thing. And what it does is it hardens us to sin. It hardens and calluses us to the brokenness of humanity where we can see what someone's struggling with and be like, better, good thing it ain't me. Yep. Well, it should break our hearts to do something. So many times we sit callously by. And see, this is a scary thing because apathy to sin... When we become apathetic to sin, what happens is it causes us not to do what we should do. We can feel something inside that says, you should say something, you should do something, you should do something, and you go, yeah. But see, James chapter 4, verse 17, tells us something. Very specifically. He says this, Therefore to him that knoweth to do good, listen, and doeth it not, to him it is sin. So there are sins of commission, where you consciously go against God, but there are also sins of omission. When we don't do what we're supposed to do. So many Christians today have been, are lulled into silence because they have just lost sight of why they're here and who it is they're supposed to represent. Right. We get so caught up in ourselves. A picture of ingratitude and entitlement. Making provision for sin instead of standing against it. Now, obviously, this is not everyone. Most probably the people in this room. I'm not talking to you, Right. Because I know as a church, what are we trying to do? We're trying to be established in biblical truth. We're starting to have doctrinal and foundational understanding of God's word. We work on application through discipleship Wednesday nights, teaching us how to live the word of God. We want to evangelize our community. We want to touch the lives of those that are broken. Why does it say a place of restoration on our sign? Because that's what we do. People come, I mean, we when at our meetings, we always say, I'd Raise your hand if you've been restored here, and everybody's like, blah, blah, blah. I mean, I was restored here for goodness sakes. So many people come from religious backgrounds or from churches where they've been so devastated from the stupidity of people. And then what you can do is you can just take all that stuff and just throw it in the trash and say, listen, let's just focus on knowing who God is. Let's change the heart. Let's work from the inside out. We don't need to shape people's exterior. We need to change their interior because God shapes the outside. If you get people to conform to the outside, but their heart's not changed, all you're doing is creating a bunch of hypocrites. But man, if you get somebody to fall in love with God's Word, what's amazing is, you know what? The inside, man, they start to grow. They start to develop. The joy of the Lord starts to show up in their lives. Their countenance changes. And guess what? The outside starts to change. And then all of a sudden their life starts to spill into someone else's life. And suddenly the pain that they used to hate from their past now becomes a gateway to help somebody else. And instead of hating your pain that you used to have in your life, now you value it as a ministering tool to help someone else. Man, God never wastes pain. It's just his pattern to take pain and then use it to help someone else. How many of us have been healed from someone else who went through a terrible situation who could relate to where we came from? And because they could speak into it and understand where we came from, we're like, I can listen to you. But if you've lived this peachy keen, you know, Christian polished life where you're like, yes, everything I do is perfect and I'm amazing and you know what? My (laughs) blank doesn't stink and blah, 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 whatever. I'm Mr. Per, whatever. You can't relate to that person. You're like, well, I, I can't be like that guy. He lives on a pedestal. But what if you go, no, you came out of the same muck I did? Oh, cool. Well, I can listen to that. Mm -hmm. You know, why do I think God makes me effective? And I'm not speaking of myself because I come from brokenness. I have been shattered in a million pieces and God has restored me. Man, it's a beautiful thing. And he gives hope to hopeless people, which is why we're here. Praise God. And so we see the 11th. Have organized, I promise I'm almost done. I know y'all are like, what is it? Where is he going? We're almost done. I promise. Uh, so the, the 11 gather themselves together. They organize themselves against this Gebeyan sin. Uh, Judges 20, verse 12 through 14 says this. And the tribe of Israel sent men through all the tribe of Benjamin. Okay, so they're sending notice to all of Benjamin, saying, what wickedness is this that is done among you? Okay, he's trying to make them, help, to make them face the sin and become accountable. So remember, it's about trying to reach All 12 tribes. Verse 13. Now therefore deliver us the men, the children of Belial. Notice this. He does not say give us the entire city of Gebeah. He says just give us the guys that did the wrong. The ones that committed the sin. He says which are in Gebeah that we may put them to death and put away evil from Israel. Remember the whole goal was to make Israel holy. He said there's something unholy that's worked its way in. We want to remove it. Give it up to us so we can do the right thing. But the children of Benjamin would not hearken to the voice of their brethren, the children of Israel. Verse 14, But the children of Benjamin gathered themselves together out of the cities unto Gebeah. Notice they go to Gebeah. And notice this. They go out to battle against the children of Israel. Remember, Gebeah is a hill. This is the hill they're going to choose to die on. Because you know what's getting ready to happen? They're about to get walked. It's going to be bad. There's 400,000 footmen. There's 26,000 of them. And they're fierce warriors. Yeah, and they do okay. They battle for a little while. But eventually, guess what? They get decimated. They absolutely get hammered. They go from being literally tens of thousands down to about 600 men. The city is destroyed everything. It's unbelievable. They are literally choosing sin over righteousness. And see, this is the thing that as Christians... It's dangled in front of our faces every day. Despicable sin is just somehow, some way, through music, through internet, through interaction, through conversation, through whatever media it is, something is going to be dangled before our eyes to try to get our hearts away from the things of God. Because you know what? This world is desperately wicked, and so are our hearts. Our hearts are so easily drawn to what is wrong. You know, we talk about this, and when you when do discipleship, one of the examples I give is, you know, when you first get saved, it's kind of like being a horse with a cart behind it. Our flesh is the horse, and here we are as the driver of the cart. And what's happening is, we've been lost all of our life. For, you know, for me, it was 34 years. And for 34 years, I had developed the ruts with this same cart and this same horse going down the same paths all my life. So I knew how to sin. I knew how to cuss. I knew how to have, you know, sexual activity, drugs, alcohol. Oh, man, I had no problem. I didn't have to practice to do those things. My flesh did it willingly. It wanted to do those things. So guess what? I had worn those ruts very deeply. There was no bushes in the way. It was clean. So I get saved. Well, all of a sudden, 34 years old, it's like, well, guess what, horse? We're changing our course. What do you think the horse is like? No. Uh, I was say, like, no. And that's better. Um, but, but now I'm going, hey, horse, we're going this way. And what's the horse doing? No, no, no. Do you realize this way? There's bushes and trees and rocks and hills. You're going to make me go through that? That rents so much easier. Could you just let go of the reins and let me get us back on course where we, know we need to go? And we're going, no, I'm going this way. And every day we've got to fight that horse, right? The Bible, interesting enough, when you go back in the, in, in the Old Testament, what does he call the Israelites? He calls them stiff-necked. It's talking about an animal that's doing this. Just won't turn its head. And that's us. But you know what's cool? The longer you hold those reins and the more you force it to make a new path, guess what it starts to do? Develop new ruts. And those old ones start to grow back in, and trees fall and start to block. But you know what? You've got to be careful. The Bible says, be sober, be vigilant for your adversary. The devil as a roaring lion walketh about, seeking whom he may devour. If you're not sober and vigilant, you don't keep at least a hand on that rein. You climb in the back of the cart and take a nap, you know where you're going to wake up? Right back where you were in the beginning. Because that horse has a very good memory. So, I don't know where I got off on that, but anyway, <laughs> the point is this, right? God is working in these in working to try to bring these Benjamites to be accountable for their sin. Can we not see ourselves in these people? Right? Can we not see? Because it's easy to judge the Benjamites, but we got to realize the fact that guess what? In many ways they picture they picture us. And so again, as I said, in the resulting battle they'll be wiped out. And then what happens? At an amazing, after the dust settles, there's just a few, just a handful of guys left. The other tribes are going to say, you know what? It's not right that one of the tribes is completely decimated. And they basically kind of help them rebuild. And now we go 330 years into the future, and what's just going to happen? God's going to give the Benjamites another chance. He's going to bless them with something that is amazing. 1 Samuel chapter 10, verses 17 through 20. We're almost done. And Samuel, okay? Samuel, this is God's prophet, speaking for God. He says, Samuel called the people together unto the Lord to Mizpah, same place, and said unto the children of, of Israel, Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, I brought up Israel out of Egypt, and delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians, and out of the hand of all the kingdoms and of them that oppressed you. And he says, and ye have this day, listen to this, and ye have this day rejected your God. You're not walking with the Lord, who himself saved you out of all your, advers- ad- your ad- uh, adversities, and your tribulations. And ye have said unto him, Nay, but set a king over us. We want a king, but we don't want it to be you. We want an earthly king like all the pagan nations around us. We want to have a king so that we can claim he's our leader. Now therefore, present yourselves before the Lord by your tribes and by your thousands. So now all of Israel gathers again and the hand of God favors a little group called the Benjamites. And when Samuel had caused all the tribes of Israel to come near, the tribe of Benjamin was taken. And there was a young man by the name of Saul who was humble, but he was big and strong and strapping. And you're like, man, that guy looks like a king. He'll be perfect. And they're like, okay. So God allows them to choose their king. And God says, okay, this is your guy. And he starts out well, man. He has the best intentions, but boy, oh boy. Sadly, it goes awry. Because of his pride and his neglect of his relationship with God, eventually he will die a disgrace of a man and as a king. He betrayed God and he betrayed his people as the Benjamite king of Israel. Benjamin again and again and their descendants. Man, they were privileged. They were privileged with position, right? Being the youngest son of Rachel, they were given Provisions of privilege. They were given the holy city of God to protect. They were given entrusted with the, to rule the nation with power of privilege being the first king of Israel. And what's amazing is in each one of these instances they failed. They were bad stewards of what was entrusted to them. And so my question to us is how are we, in regards to what's been entrusted to us? How are we using the lives that God's given us? Because consider this: as children of God, have we not been born again into a position of privilege, join heirs with Christ? Have we not been blessed with both physical and spiritual gifts providing for us provisions of privilege? And are we not the sons and daughters of Almighty God, given the power of privilege, just like Benjamin? Looking at the Benjamites today, man, we can certainly see failure for them. But are we willing to look at ourselves and maybe see that there might be some failure in our lives? Again, how well are we stewarding what God's given us? How well are we using our position how well are we using our provision? How, are we, how well are we using our power? That's talking about our, our, our ability to influence, right? If we go to our, our Instagram feed, our, our Facebook feed, whatever it is, how are, we, how are we projecting the goodness of God? Or is it a picture of our lunch? Right? Some stupid cat video. They're excited. I mean, I get caught up in too. do Don't get me wrong. But... Look, well, he's so funny. Knock the other one down. Whatever. But the point is this. We can get so caught up in this stuff, and it's not sinful to look at cat videos. But what I'm saying is if we get our priorities out of order. Right. You know, when you stand before the Lord, he's not going to, that was a good one. <laughs> I love that cat video. No. no. <laughs> he's going to talk about what we did for him. That's right. How did your life make a difference for eternity? What was your investment in others? How did you represent me to this broken world? Ultimately, that's who it is we're supposed to be. Now, if we're not, I'm going to give you a little bit of hope. And surprisingly, it's going to come from the tribe of Benjamin. How cool is this, how God works? 1,077 years later, after Saul, there'll be a man on the road to Damascus. And his name just happens to be Saul. who will be chosen by God and given a position as the apostle to the Gentiles. He'll be given provision as God will provide his word to this man and he'll write over almost half of the, Old, of the New Testament, 14 books. And he will receive power has gotten preached the gospel message of Christ through him. Amen. He's given position, provision, and power. The apostle Paul, you know what he did? He finished right. And though his history was a mess, and though his people were failures, Paul in the end rose to the occasion And so if you stand here today and you say, listen, you don't know where I come from. It doesn't matter where you come from. I don't care where you come from. I don't care what you've done, what your past represents. It does not matter because Paul's past was a wreck. But yet Paul was redeemed by the hand of God and used to change the world for the glory of God. And so, us today, maybe as Benjamites, man, God can take us out of the miry clay and get us in, and take our brokenness and restore us and turn our lives around and use us for His glory if we'll let Him. Man, what a, what a beautiful picture to track their brokenness all the way to Him. And how cool that they have the same name, only God changes it to the Apostle Paul. Awesome. The Apostle of the Gentiles. Our guy, Amen. the Apostle Paul. Praise the Lord. Amen. And if we don't lose sight of who it is we are and where it is we're going and our relationship with our Heavenly Father and we remain grateful and we remain humble, well, then you know what? We will not fall Fall, prey to the pitfalls of privilege because that happens when you take for granted what you have. But what's so cool If you remain humble, the Bible says, humble yourself in the sight of God and he shall lift you up. God wants to use our lives. That's why they're here. That's why he gave it to us. Not so we can become successful or create a name for ourselves, but so that his name can be proclaimed to this world. As time grows short, there's never been a time like now when we need to be about the father's business. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for the love you have for us. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you, Lord, for the message you gave us today uh, from an unusual place. But God, I thank you for what we've learned. And I do pray that you'd help us each one. Help us to surrender our hearts to your perfect will for us. God, thank you for showing us through the Benjamites a picture of failure, but also a picture of redemption. And thank you, Lord, for each one that's here today. For my brothers and sisters maybe that are struggling, dealing with some issue in their life, perhaps some brokenness, perhaps apathy, whatever it is. God, I pray that you'd help them, help them to bring it to your feet and Lord, to surrender it to you that you might use their lives for your glory. And for those that might be here today, maybe listening to this or, or watching it recorded. And maybe you're saying, you know what? I don't even, I don't even know that I have a relationship with God. I try to believe in God. Listen, that's, I, that's what I grew up in. I believed in God, but I did not know him. There's a big difference between believing in God and being a child of God. Can I tell you that the devil believes in God? He is not going to heaven. The Bible says that the demons tremble in the presence of God. They have an emotional reaction to God's presence. They believe that he's real. They believe in his word. They can quote his word and they are going to hell. It is a matter of surrendering our hearts to the Lord Jesus Christ and the death, burial, and resurrection that he did and displayed for us. And what we feel is this compulsion Jesus said, no one cometh to the Father, but no, one, no one cometh to me, but the Father draw him. There's a compulsion. And if you're here today, you're listening to this recorded, and you say, listen, I feel, I feel that compulsion. God's drawing me. If you do not know him personally, you can today. There is no magic prayer. There is no ceremony. It is nothing more than a broken heart receiving the gift of Christ. The Bible says, For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. It's a promise. And with their heads bowed and eyes closed, if you want to receive Christ as your Savior, again, it's no magic prayer to it. It's just more if this is your heart speaking to God. And I can promise you, He's listening, He's drawing you. All you have to do is surrender. And I'm going to lead you in prayer. Now understand, again, all He cares about is your heart. You don't have to pray out loud. You can pray in your own heart. He's ready to receive you. And if you want to receive Him, you can do that right now. In your heart, in your mind, repeat after me if you want to receive Christ as your Savior. He loves you right now. Repeat after me. Dear Lord, I know that I'm a sinner and I am so sorry for my sin. God, I realize that I have hurt you. I've hurt others. And I've hurt myself. I give up. I surrender. I believe you died for me, that you love me in spite of myself. And I'm asking you right now, in the best way I know how, to come into my life, to forgive me of my sins, and to give me a home in heaven through your death, through your burial, and your resurrection. Thank you for loving me. Thank you for saving me. I'll see you in heaven one day. For it's in Jesus' name I pray and give thanks. Amen.